James Warren Jones was born on May 13, 1931, in rural Indiana. Growing up, he studied both philosophy and religion, and became fascinated with Marxism and attending communist gatherings. He believed the way to spread his message of social equality was through religion. In September 1955, Jim Jones started the People's Temple, whose primary mission was racial integration and promoting socialist ideology. This was an unpopular viewpoint at the time in Indiana, and due to harsh criticism, Jones decided to move the People's Temple to Redwood Valley, California in 1965. Membership was flourishing, and by the late 1960s, other branches of the church opened in Los Angeles and San Francisco. In the early 1970s, Jones moved the headquarters of the People's Temple to San Francisco. The church was well-connected politically, and in 1975, Jones was appointed as the chairman of the San Francisco Housing Authority Commission. However, Jones's message had become more extreme. His paranoia was mounting, and his control over his followers was increasing. In 1973, defectors from the People's Temple spoke to reporters who wrote critical newspaper articles about the organization. Former members alleged Jones, whom they were required to refer to as father, forced them to give up their possessions, leave their homes, and cut ties with family members who were not part of the group. Jones, reading these criticisms, believed they were under attack and began to develop a contingency plan to move the People's Temple out of the United States. In 1974, several Temple members traveled to Guyana, a place Jones had visited several years earlier, to begin establishing a commune where followers could live in peace away from their critics. The site was in the jungle some 150 miles west of the capital city of Georgetown. It was comprised of 3,800 acres of poor quality soil, and the nearest water source was seven miles away. Despite these conditions, Jones believed his followers would grow enough food to sustain the entire community. In 1977, Jones and approximately 1,000 of his followers relocated to the commune, which had been named Jonestown after their charismatic leader. But Jonestown was far from the paradise Jones had promised. Members worked long days in horrid conditions. Heat, bugs, and snakes posed great danger, and the poor quality of the soil made agriculture all but impossible. Some members lost their faith in the temple and wanted to leave but Jones required them to surrender their passports when they arrived, ensuring their confinement. As dissent grew, so did Jones's grip on his followers. He forced them to attend late-night meetings, gave lengthy sermons over the loudspeakers, during which members were not allowed to speak to one another, and required them to inform him of anyone making plans to leave Jonestown. Armed guards surrounded the property, further reinforcing members' captivity. Jones was becoming increasingly paranoid, he had also developed a drug addiction, which accelerated his already declining mental health. He was convinced that the media and the U.S. government wanted to destroy him and his organization. As a result, he preached to his followers that they needed to be prepared for an attack. He told them that such an attack would require a revolutionary act, which amounted to them committing mass suicide. He often held suicide drills in the middle of the night. The followers, however, did not know these were drills and they drank what they believed to be cyanide, only to find out that it was a harmless substance. Jones told them these were loyalty tests, but warned them there would be a time when it would be necessary for them to commit revolutionary suicide. 
1978, some of the families of People's Temple members went to Leo Ryan, a United States representative from California, and expressed their concern that their family members were being held against their will. On November 17, 1978, Ryan, accompanied by reporters and photographers, arrived in Guyana to investigate the People's Temple. Jones actually provided a lavish welcome for the congressman and his entourage, and even agreed to meet with reporters. The congressman began to believe Jonestown was actually the oasis Jones had portrayed. However, during the visit, some of the members slipped Ryan notes, indicating they needed help to escape. The following morning, Ryan, the reporters and photographers, and a small group of People's Temple defectors went to the airstrip to leave Guyana and return to the United States. While they were waiting for their planes to arrive, they were ambushed by gunmen sent by Jones. Congressman Ryan, cameraman Bob Brown, photographer Greg Robinson, reporter Don Harris, and Temple defector Patricia Parks were killed. Nine other individuals were wounded during the attack. The same day, Jones told his followers they were under siege. Over the loudspeaker, he ordered his followers to commit the revolutionary act they had practiced. The children, who comprised approximately one-third of the members, were to die first, as the adults used syringes to put the poison down the children's throats. The adults then lined up to drink the poison, while armed guards surrounded the pavilion, making sure no one escaped. The following day, Guyanese officials found 909 People's Temple members dead. Jones, who was 47 years old at the time, was found with a single gunshot wound to the head. It was believed the wound was self-inflicted. A few temple members were able to escape to the jungle that day, and several dozen other members, who were in another part of Guyana, also survived. What has since been called the Jonestown Massacre was the single largest loss of American civilian life prior to the attacks on September 11, 2001. This episode is about the Jonestown Massacre. Welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono and Dr. David Morelos. So David, I am fascinated with cults. I remember the first time I learned about Jonestown and I was just horrified and captivated at the same time. You know, I've, I've always wanted to understand how cults develop and why people stay in cults even when it's against their best interest or even their moral beliefs to do so. Sure, I think we're all interested in that. While I've read a lot about this topic, I'm not an expert on cults. I'm just someone who wants to share some of the theories that I've come across in my studies, and I think that you want to do the same. Yeah. 
And, you know, it's because we think they're interesting and because, like, the theories that I want to talk about or the theory that I want to talk about today has kind of helped me to conceptualize how that indoctrination process happens Mm -hmm. in cults. So I think the first thing that we kind of wanted to put out there is that, you know, most, the vast majority of people who join cults, who are cult members, are just normal people, right? Right. They're not mentally ill. They don't uh, have personality disorders per se or anything like that. They're just normal people. So, I mean, why do you think people are drawn to cults, to organizations like this? Yeah, I did some thinking about this and a little bit of research as well. And obviously, just like you said, I'm not an expert in cults or probably really anything that we've talked about (laughs) on this podcast I wouldn't consider myself an expert in. But the issue of cults has definitely come up in my studies as a transpersonalist and in the field of transpersonal psychology. You cannot escape it. Um, And it's sort of interesting uh, why that is. And so I was looking at this and I was thinking about Jonestown in particular. Mm -hmm. And I think Jonestown uh, is an interesting topic as a cult because cults are not something that I know a whole lot about, but something that I have to acknowledge as part of the transpersonal community, at least in terms of the topic of spirituality. Okay. So there are a number of different kinds of cults. Sure. Right. But the one that um, is interesting and the way Jim Jones decided to go about it was decidedly spiritual. And I think that is a major point. Yeah, I think that his message was primarily political, but as I said during the intro... Well, social anyway. Yeah, it was social, yes. Right. And he he saw religion as an opportunity to kind of push forth those messages. Okay, so religion yes. and maybe to a lesser extent, but definitely spirituality. Yeah. Right? Religion yeah. as it re- pertains to spirituality. I, I feel like that was the vehicle that he chose to push his agenda. Right, which is... Interesting. It is. Right? Uh, Okay, so cults could be considered a byproduct of the dark side of spirituality, I would think, or when the spiritual pursuit becomes fanatical or overpowers other more practical aspects of our life. Mm -hmm. When listening to your synopsis of the Jonestown story, I couldn't help but think of other stories that were centered around the same basic premise. The most recent case of this kind of cult devotion has been the uh, Nexium cult, which has been in the news recently. Right, yes. And involves some minorly famous people, you mm-hmm. could say. I think back to the Branch Davidians, which was a big thing uh, in the 90s when you and I were growing up. Absolutely. Uh, Heaven's Gate, which was also pretty big. Yes. Uh, the Hellbop Comet, I remember uh, that. As a matter of fact, I like to point out that the Celestron Starhopper telescope that I own is signed by Thomas Bopp. One of the uh, astronomers famous for discovering Hale Bop. How cool is that? Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And of course, all the press that Scientology has been receiving lately. I was associated with uh, basically what that means is I used to be married into a Jehovah's Witness family in the past, and I've heard people describe their system of beliefs and their religion as cult-like. Hmm. I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily say that. No, I don't I don't view them as being a cult. But and and you know, as we talk about some of the stuff related to cults, there are there is overlap between cults and other organizations who are not cults. So right. all religions, there's some overlap between some of the things that we're gonna discuss and other major religions or political organizations or whatever. But I think what we're really talking about, like you said, is that dark side, that very extreme version of these types of organizations. Sure. And so where that 
sort of comes up is and and where we get this idea of what a cult is is sort of any group of people that has a devotion to something that we don't understand or something that we think is weird maybe well i i think that that term can be thrown around quite a bit i mean people talk about cult following i was just gonna say that i think the label's thrown around a lot more than it should be yeah but at the same time you know the story reminded me of the controversial leader who founded the Naropa Institute, which, as some people know, is where I did my undergraduate mm-hmm. studies. So I always heard that Trungpa Rinpoche, which was his name, uh, the founder of the school back in the 1970s, uh, was controversial. You know, he was a controversial spiritual leader. I was young and a bit naive about this. A few years after I graduated school uh, in 1999, I came across a book that was a written account of a situation involving one of Trungpa Rinpoche's spiritual retreats, where it was reported that a group of drunken partygoers forced one of the students and his girlfriends to disrobe in front of everyone, even after they had tried to leave a party. Trungpa was known for a a lot of very unorthodox behavior, especially for someone who was considered a very important spiritual leader. Many considered him an alcoholic. He was promiscuous and slept with many of his female students. There were rumors of excessive cocaine use, etc. The stories go on and on. At the time, Trungpa was instrumental in bringing Buddhism to the West and had established a very devoted following of people, some of whom were famous. Mm -hmm. Um, Many of the beat poets, the most notable being Allen Ginsberg, um, became followers Mm -hmm. of Trungpa Rinpoche. Ginsberg went on to help create uh, the writing program at Naropa with Ann Waldman, who still teaches there today. Allen Ginsberg passed away, I think, in 97, 96 or 97. Ann Waldman, who's still alive, still teaches there. And that's the program. That's what your degree was in from Naropa, In writing and lit. Correct. Right. That's the actual program that I studied in. So so in many ways, Trungpa Rinpoche's story has many cultish sort of characteristics to it. He was a charismatic leader. He had a devoted following of people. There were accusations of strange behavior from those who were looking in from the outside. Mm-hmm. So fast forward today in the Nexium cult, or a story of another charismatic leader using his influence to convince his followers to commit acts that most sane people would not even consider. Yeah. In this case, the leader had begun grooming a number of the women in the organization to be his harem of sorts, or devoted to him sexually. Right. So and this seems to be the main thrust of the cult, to attain power and control over groups of people. You and I were in a cult-like phase, um, so to speak, while we're in <laughs> what I I'm mean like, by wait, that. wait, what? You guys can't see my face, but I, I'm like, what are you talking about? Cult-like phase in terms of what we were watching on Netflix. We were watching a lot of stuff on oh, cults. Oh, right. Yes, we did watch a lot of documentaries on cults. Right, okay. back to back. All we right, watched, all right. Um, we watched Wild Wild Country yes. about Osho, yes. which was fascinating. Very interesting. Uh, we watched Holy Hell about the Buddha Field Buddha group. Field, yes, also interesting. And we watched the documentary on Jonestown. Yes, Okay. Right. So I resonate with the idea that cults don't necessarily demand people who are mentally ill. Most cults seem to make a promise for something that I think all of us are searching for. That is some way to be part of a community that allows us to live the life we want to live, even if our beliefs are outside of the mainstream. So the idea of a cult seems to start with someone rejecting the norms of our society in some way, shape, or form. They then find others who seem to fall in line with their ideas, whether they be social or political or spiritual. Then they find ways to extricate themselves from mainstream society in both ideological and even physical ways, as in starting a commune, maybe. Right, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that later on. 
many people who have been in cults were, and or who were raised in them generally report a lot of the same things. For instance, there's always seems to be that initial promise that this is what you've been looking for. Yes. Right? All your life. This group slash community slash organization is going to fulfill you in ways that life in this seemingly vapid contemporary age cannot. Mm -hmm. uh, many report that in the beginning there is a sense of that what they are doing as a group is somehow revolutionary. They report a constant sense of excitement and endless possibility. It's almost as if they start to believe that what they are doing is somehow going to change the world, usher in some their own sense of enlightenment or salvation or spiritual understanding or whatever it is you want to call it. Right, and I think that that's what cult leaders promise people. Yeah. Right, I mean, it's right. that you can have all of these things. Right, so mm -hmm. it speaks to something on that level, Yeah. right? And this is how it starts. You are a part of something. You are building something the world hasn't seen. Maybe you are convinced you have found a better way of living that others will slowly come to realize as well. Maybe you think this form of living is more evolved or that it's somehow more true to human nature, that it's groundbreaking, whatever. There is a promise with this group that you are part of something big, the recipient of some kind of wisdom or knowledge that makes you special as a member of this group. You know something others don't. You have figured it out. Well, and isn't it interesting because I think as humans, you know, we want to be special. We want to um, have something about the, us that makes us stand out. But at the same time, we, we're social and we desperately need to be part of a group. And I see those two things coexisting with the cult, right? You get to be part of this group, but you're also this very special person that has this information or has access to something that other people don't. Yeah, that's exactly it, right? And so now we're special. So for many, this initial feeling seems to answer or even eliminate many of the existential issues we all face in life as part of being alive. Most people ask themselves questions like, is this all there is? Uh, we do what we're told to do, but we still find ourselves emotionally slash spiritually destitute. So I think the appeal of a cult is easy to understand. Give people a feeling of belonging, some excitement about being part of something new, groundbreaking, and a promise that this idea or way of life will somehow be the answer to all your problems and all your longings, etc. And I think that this is key. Deep down, we all have, I would argue, these kinds of leanings. I think at some point or another, we all sort of acknowledge that rebellious hippie side of ourselves that would be amenable to some kind of organization that bucked society's rules. You know, another example of this phenomenon to me would be the movie uh, The Beach with Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, yeah. We just watched that. Yeah, not mm -hmm. too long ago, right? And it's this idea that we can escape society um, and we can shun a great deal of contemporary society and the problems that come with it, like boredom, monotony, the rat race, you know, all that stuff. And that we can do it better. Like, we can go and create our own world where we won't have any of the problems of, of modern society. Right. As if that's the issue, right? That modern society is the issue. Not us. Right. Not, not us. It's, it's not modern human nature, right? It's, right? it's all those other people or all the, just the, the constructs that cause it. Right. So... Again, at first, we have when you, you know, when Leonardo DiCaprio stumbled across the beach, it looked like paradise. So we have this version of what paradise might look like. But that's it, right? It looks like paradise at first. 
Then, like all cults, it goes to hell. Mm -hmm. right? Power struggles, sexual slash emotional slash physical abuse, mind control, even murder. You name it. The darkness of our collective humanity explodes onto the scene and we find ourselves in yet another failed sociological experiment. And that's the promise, it seems, that every one of these cults offers to us. This vision of everything we ever wanted, whether it be an idea of enlightenment or something as base as the ability just to sleep with a lot of people, which is why some people join cults, mm -hmm. right? So sure. they, can, they can do things like that, you know, or act in ways that their behavior might result in negative consequences in normal society. To me, the cult represents the promise of something that can never really be delivered. And that is this idea of pure light. Or, yeah, you know, there's no such thing. Right. Or light doesn't exist without dark. Without darkness, exactly. Doesn't. Constant bliss. Yeah. Right? Everlasting paradise. So in other words, the Garden of Eden, so to speak. And your life will be perfect forever. It is a fundamental denial of the dark aspects of our collective nature. No ideology, no system of living, no spiritual wisdom is going to eliminate all of our darkness for us. The darkness in us is a fundamental part of our nature, right? Just like you said, the counterpart to the light. The promise of the cult seems to be with it that somehow we'll be saved from our own darkness by pretending that it doesn't exist. So darkness is denied and everything seems like paradise at first. Then after a while, the darkness having been denied, it grows like a cancer until it explodes forth in a much more virulent and powerful fashion. People seem to tolerate this darkness in cults because they cling to the original promise or the original vision, that feeling that they had when they were truly part of something they thought that mattered. It reminds me of people who stay in bad relationships. Yep. You know, they'll say, well, it was so good at first, like, it, it'll go back to that. And they they just cling to that initial emotional experience. And then, right. of course, it never, it never pans out. Right. So I, I wanted to chime in with some of the theories, well, one of the theories in particular that I found and that really made sense to me when considering cults and kind of speaking to that indoctrination process. Well, this is the contemporary theory and research that you teach, too. Yeah, this cults. is this is what I teach about not only cults, but actually terrorist organizations, because there is a lot of overlap okay. um, when, when you're conceptualizing these types of groups. So a terrorist organization could be seen as a political cult, really. A violent political cult. A violent cult. political cult. Sure. So it's interesting. So I, I called this an indoctrination process earlier, but it's also called an inculturation process um, because it, it has to do with how people get kind of into cults. And there are lots of other theories, of course, so I'm, I'm not saying that this is the be-all, end-all, and I'm sure that we'll come back to some of these other theories because there's so many cults that we could be discussing in right. future episodes. But the one I want to discuss uh, during this episode is that of Dr. Anthony Stahelski. Dr. Stahelski is a psychologist and professor at Central Washington University, and he's done much research on the group dynamics of cults and terrorist organizations. So Dr. Stahelski theorizes that there are five phases in the indoctrination process of violent cults. So, and I would classify People's Temple, Jonestown, as being a violent cult because they did murder people and then murdered all the children and there was the mass suicide. Yeah, they definitely evolved into a violent cult. Right. Sure. 
So the first phase is called depluralization. During this phase, members are encouraged to cut all of their former ties and give up any affiliations they have outside of the group. Warning sign. <laughs> yes. So this process serves to isolate the members and forces them to become dependent upon the group for their self-concept, their self-esteem. So as a result, members become willing to do whatever they need to do to remain connected to the group. The process of depluralization can take a very short time. So for some cults or organizations, it can be just a matter of days, but it can also take a very long time. So say several years before that process is complete. So the second phase is self-de-individuation. During this phase, members give up all of their personal identity, both internally and externally. So they may be required to change their dress or appearance. Um, that makes me think of the Heaven's Gate cult. Yeah. Remember, they had like track suits and were they Nikes? Didn't yeah. they wear Nikes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they were all dressed the exact same. Yeah, so there are certain cults that require the members to change their appearance. But they're also expected to give up any values or beliefs they have that are not in line with the cult leader. Mm -hmm. Through this process, their identity becomes redefined according to the cult's values. So other individuation is the third phase of the indoctrination process. During this phase, people who are not members of the cult are identified as enemies. Members are required to sever ties with any people who are not part of the group. They may not even be allowed to refer to outsiders by their names. The goal of this phase is for members to begin to view all outsiders as being alike without any distinguishing characteristics. Because, right, if they have distinguishing characteristics, if they're able to kind of humanize them or identify with them on a more personal level, then that risks them leaving the cult. Yeah, sure. So this sets the stage for the fourth phase, which is called dehumanization. This occurs when all positive characteristics are attributed to the cult members and all negative characteristics are attributed to people outside of the cult. Violent cults sometimes will refer to outsiders as non-human entities. So things like pigs or rats or snakes, you know, you name it. Mm hmm so while the other phases we've discussed so far apply to violent and nonviolent cults, Dr. Stahelski says that nonviolent cults typically do not dehumanize outsiders. This is something that generally only occurs in violent cults, such as the People's Temple, and we can certainly see that in terrorist organizations as well. Mm. So the fifth and final stage is demonization. This is a conditioning process where cult members are trained to believe outsiders are their enemies and that they're in league with some kind of evil. So in religious cults, outsiders may be associated with like the devil. Um, and in political cults, the outsiders can be viewed as wanting to annihilate members, being murderers or, or something of that sort. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, I really like this model because I think all five of these phases were pretty apparent in the People's Temple in Jonestown. So Jones not only instructed his followers to cut ties with outsiders, I mean, think about how physically isolated they were. I mean, I don't know, like nobody goes to Guyana yeah. nowadays, right. much less back then. Yeah. They were literally in the middle of the jungle. You know, the nearest city was, what, 150 miles away? Mm -hmm. So they were completely isolated. There were no telephones. There was really no way for them to even communicate with their families. Right. So for many of them, 
by this point, you know, imagine that you gave up all of your relationships, you've given up your job, your your career, you've given up your home, you've left your country, you're in this very isolated area where there are no other people other than cult members. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're completely dependent upon the cult. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think about the level of threat that would be present for somebody to leave that situation. Oh, yeah. First off, where would you go? Right. Right. I mean, some people uh, tried to escape the commune and tried to get to Venezuela and they didn't make it. They got out to the jungle and it was so dark that they said they could not see their hands in front of their faces. And so they had to go back to the main road and guess who was out there looking for them? Yeah. Jones. Yeah. And then they were severely punished for even attempting to go. Right. So there were so many barriers to them leaving that it's almost like a child who's abused. It's what, kind of what it makes me think of that, mm-hmm. you know, there might be all of this rage and desire to escape from the parent, but they're completely dependent upon them. So in some ways they have to like maintain that connection and that loyalty and that love. And I, I feel like that was kind of a similar thing that was going on in Jonestown with, with the temple members. Yeah. So in addition to all this, so Jones did still let people write their families, but it was all censored. So he read through every letter that went out so that he could make sure that they weren't, you know, communicating anything negative about the, the group. Mm-hmm. And then he also forced members to tell on each other. So he told them that he had planted people in in the group that would complain. And it was basically a test that if somebody complained to them and they didn't go and tell Jones and he found out about it, then they would be punished. So they were afraid to say anything negative. If anybody did say something negative, they were afraid to kind of talk with them about it for fear that they were basically one of Jones's spies. Mm-hmm. So that quashed any kind of planning for a mass escape. Right. So Jones also referred to the evil capitalists. He called them pigs. So he engaged in that dehumanization. And he told them that it was the capitalists, the U.S. government, the media... It was their goal to destroy Jonestown and harm all of the temple members. And he told them that the only way out was to kill those trying to help people escape, defectors, and themselves. So, I mean, I think that there's strong evidence for all five of those phases with the people's temple cult. Well, it was interesting, too, what you said about there being a lot of overlap in different things. The current political climate right now sort of gives lends itself to some of these things as well which is this idea that we dehumanize people that don't necessarily think like us right you know and what that means as as different political views become further and further separated from one another and this belief that these are are somehow our enemies when people are people and people generally want the same things right right they want safety security they want to be able to um have relationships with other people, things like that. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they want um, just to live life, essentially. Right. It's just sort of interesting to me, like the parallels of it. But this is, you know, when everybody goes around calling everybody Nazis, right? because this is exactly almost how Hitler was able to turn an entire nation against certain groups of people. Right. And I, I think that you can see evidence of some, maybe all five of these phases when you look at the Nazis. Right. Sure. Cultish mentality. Yes. For sure. And and like you said, as you said, there's 
there's evidence of this. Like we we engage in these behaviors to some extent in lots of different groups. And it may not be problematic when it's controlled. Right. It becomes problematic when it's all-encompassing, when it's gone into that um, that dark place, you know, where now people are not allowed to have ties. They're not allowed to communicate with the outside world. They're not allowed to leave. They're not allowed to leave. Right. And they, you know, they're um, viewing other people as being their enemies. Right. I, I really truly believe uh, as a transpersonalist and somebody who studied spirituality from a psychological perspective. And that's really what I like to do. I like to look at how spirituality affects psychology and what happens when we really start to study spirituality and all different forms of spirituality from a psychological perspective. One of the things that to me spirituality has to do is it has to acknowledge and deal with darkness. I am always skeptical of any spiritual path that promises bliss or eternal light or just is like 100% positive all the time. Mm -hmm. Because you have to wonder, you know, where's the darkness? This simply isn't who we are as human beings. You, you know, you when you as you can imagine, um, the, the transpersonalist movement, which was considered a product of the hippie 60s, so I've come into contact with some pretty far out philosophies, some pretty far out ideologies and spiritual practices. Some are, you know, interesting, very interesting, mm -hmm. fascinating. But the ones that set off my spidey senses are the ones that deny the darkness in us, you know, only selling some kind of infinite light and bliss. Well, I, I would argue that, mo that the major religions acknowledge that there's darkness. But that's why I think the major religions, the world's major religions, have lasted for so long. Yes. I think that, that they make room for that. Yes, I would agree. Yeah, I think that they have to. They, they have to make room. There's still a lot of denial of darkness, I think, in a lot of the bigger religions. I mean, but that is, um, and as time goes on, you see that coming out. Um, again, you know, we, every so often you hear another story of a priest that was moved from, right, right, yes. or something. There was that pastor down in Colorado Springs. Yeah. That was... Just down the road from here. Yeah, that right? was like, he preached all about, you know, it was like, he was like an evangelical yeah. um, pastor, and then yeah. it turned out he was like having relations with gay prostitutes and, and using crystal meth, crystal and meth all that. And, right. Right. You, right. You see this all the time in, in, in new age religion, you know, and if I wouldn't classify Buddhism as a new age religion, but here it is sort of considered new agey because it was brought over from the East. Right. Um, you see that a lot as well. You see people um, peddling spirituality that we would consider new age and you see them using it and abusing that with their followers. Yeah. And doing things that they should not be doing. Right, taking sure. advantage. Taking advantage of that, of these people who are looking for something, right? Again, I have to wonder where is the darkness here because there has to be room for it. And I believe that denying the darkness is dangerous because it doesn't go away. Right. It becomes something else. So I, I, I always have to be wary of New Age, what I would call New Age spiritual narcissism. Um, the transpersonalists as a group of researchers, they do a very fine job of trying to be open and inclusive to many different viewpoints. Unfortunately, that can also be a downfall as well, because what happens is you become so open and receptive to these different viewpoints that you run the risk of being hijacked. 
Right. Something comes in and sort of says, okay, you know, some sort of spiritual or pseudo-spiritual knowledge or wisdom comes in and kind of takes over the whole thing. And then you're like, wait a second, you know, this right. Suddenly right. it's gone something, someplace very weird and... Yes. Yeah. Cultish. And cultish, so speak, right. right. So in the end, what I find fascinating about cults is not the people who lead them or necessarily how they control people, but rather the psychology of us who seek this out who are seeking something out in that this cult is promising to us right i find that fascinating so i think that cult mentality can be an unwillingness to look inside of ourselves for the answers and instead we're projecting them out our needs our fears outwardly onto something external so it's this idea of follow me and i'll give you everything you ever wanted I think that's a dangerous promise and I think it denies the fact that we are solely responsible for our own happiness because organizations and even other people cannot give us everything. Right. They Absolutely just can't. Not. So we have to face our darkness, not run from it. We have to acknowledge it, not deny it. And then we have to learn how to manage it, understanding that we're not going to vanquish it, but instead enter into this sort of dance with this dark side of ourselves. And this is how we contain it this is how we control it yes so there's something in our collective psychology that lends itself to being hijacked i think by cultish mentalities i really do think that many of us feel like something is missing in our lives so we really have to be honest with ourselves about these kinds of existential problems these existential yearnings that we have um, if we continue to look for the answers out there i think we're going to keep traveling the same road over and over again so how do we begin to really sort of look inside ourselves for those answers? Yeah. Yeah, and I don't I don't have the answer for that, but but I do think that it's a good point and I do think that there's something about our culture that we believe that all of the meaning in our lives and our happiness has to come from the outside. And I think that what psychology has taught us and and what religion has taught us is that we have to start with ourselves. Like so, you said. yeah, quick story. So, uh, one of the philosophers that I read a lot of, uh, Ken Wilber, who was a uh, founder of the, the transpersonalist movement, huge philosopher in transpersonal psychology, he is uh, fond of saying, or at least he used to be, that um, when somebody would um, try to call him a guru, he mm-hmm. would say, No, I'm not a guru, I'm a pandit. And a pandit has a different meaning. What does that mean? I've uh, never heard that one. Sure, yeah. Yeah. It really, what it means is uh, somebody who's a scholar of, um, usually in Hinduism. Okay. Right, is where the term, it's a Hindu term. But it's sort of this idea that, okay, this person knows something. And this person is somebody that I um, can learn a lot from. Oh, well, they must be this guru. They must be this spiritually enlightened being. And, And Ken Wilber sort of took a step back because people were doing that to him based on his work. Uh-huh. I mean, the guy, he's genius level work. I mean, there's no there's no um, questioning that in my mind. I mean, the guy is amazing. He has an amazing um, brain. He has amazing, amazing capacity to think. He can also do some pretty interesting things um, when he's meditating, sure, stuff yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. But it's not him who's really seeking that sort of um, self-aggrandizing following. It's rather the people around him who are elevating him yes. and saying that, well, you must be something like this. You must be almost like a god or you must be this enlightened human being and we're going to follow you and we're going to give you all our money and we're going to do all this, right? And it was actually him who sort of took the step back and said, no, 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 no. That's not who I am, okay? 
So don't follow me. Don't with religious like, you know, this devotion, religion right. devotion, uh-huh. right? No, I'm I'm a scholar. This is what I do. I write about these things. But you could imagine somebody else who gets that type of attention and just eats it up. Eats it right up. And then we have kind of this cycle that's occurring where, you know, the person is getting this admiration and they really like it. So then they continue to feed into that and it can get out of control. Right. And that's where, hence the, the term, New Age Spiritual Narcissism. Oh, I like that. Yeah, that's yeah. that's where that's what I think of when when I think of people who are like that. You know, I mean, because I mean, very few people, maybe not very few, but I think not a lot of people would be able to to turn that kind of adoration down. Yeah. Suddenly, you have this group of people because you have some new ideas or whatever, right? Suddenly, all of these people around you, you know, giving you willingly handing you all of this power. Yeah, it would be hard for a lot of people to turn that down. <laughs> yeah. So, and then, and, and then it, you know, eventually you start, uh, I don't know, if the, the cult leader themselves start buying into it and they actually start to believe that what they're saying. You know, or, and I, I, I think that that was probably the case with Jim Jones. I yeah. mean, he he seemed to really buy into it. And, and people have argued that there was a level of, you know, mental illness going on. But even other cult leaders, I think David Koresh, I think he really believed it. Um, what Marshall Apple was it Apple White, Apple White I think Apple White anyway Heaven's Gate, the Heaven's right. Gate leader I mean he seemed to really buy into it as well so you have to wonder like is that part of the process so yeah anyway yeah. I guess it's probably time for us to wrap this up uh, there are so many interesting cult stories that I'm sure we'll be visiting this topic again for sure. We do have some information on the subject on the discussion page of our website at psychologyafterdark.com. And if you have an idea for an episode, you can also contact us on our website. You can find us on Facebook at Psychology After Dark. And as always, if you're enjoying our podcast, please give us a five-star rating on whatever app you listen to us on and let your friends know. And make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. This episode was written, hosted, and produced by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McCono. It was edited by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskis both provided by Jamendo.